Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to this bonus episode of She Said, She Said podcast. As I work on a new season of the podcast, I have been taking a break from recording over the past few weeks, and I'm sharing a few repackaged past episodes, just a few that really resonated with listeners and that generated so much great feedback. Today, friend, I have to apologize for my voice. As you can probably hear, I am still recovering from COVID. I'm doing fine and I'm so appreciative of all of your notes and messages on social media, but I am having a bit of trouble getting my voice to fully return. So hopefully that will happen soon. But before I tested positive, I had been thinking a lot about today's topic, which is confidence and the importance of putting confidence in perspective as we get ready to say goodbye to summer and really buckle up for the ramp up that occurs for most of us in the fall. Folks are going back to school, summer vacation, which I hope you had a chance to take advantage of, is behind us for the most part, and it's time to really begin to focus on what's next. So what does it really mean to be confident? We know confidence when we see it, but what does it really mean? What makes one person seemingly more confident than another? And can that confidence waver from day to day? Is a person who is confident one day always confident? I've been thinking a lot about this topic, as I said, and what makes someone more confident than someone else. And after reflecting on literally hundreds of conversations on this podcast, in which this topic has inevitably come up, there are a few things that I have found that are present for those among us who really are supremely confident most of the time. Topping the list, the ability to reframe or recategorize self-doubt and fear. Having that ability to understand what self-doubt is and how to use it in ways that propels you forward. Self-esteem. Confident people generally feel good about themselves and they have a process for putting the pieces back together after a major gut punch or failure. Let's face it, it happens to all of us at one point or another. They also get fuel from doing, from trying and trying and trying and actually learning from each iteration. 
And they do that in a way where they don't get discouraged, but instead they're looking for how can I make this process better by doing it over and over again. Confident people also invest in themselves and they do that in ways that make them feel better and ultimately that improves their confidence. They invest in learning and preparation. They invest in their health and wellness. They invest in grooming practices that make them feel good. Everything from clothing that makes them feel more confident to a good haircut and a manicure. Honestly, I have yet to, to not feel a little better and certainly more confident about myself after taking part in such investments. I don't know about you. And then most importantly, confident people know what to do when their confidence isn't where it should be. They seem to inherently understand that confidence isn't static. You might say they do fake it till they make it, but the difference is they already know that they're capable which helps them put more belief behind what they're doing and to push doubt to the back burner. Both of those things are really key. Confidence is also key to building and sustaining influence. Understanding it can make a big difference in our ability to make choices that ultimately help us continue to build this capacity. In this week's bonus episode, episode 207, I actually pulled from the way, way back archives to a conversation I recorded with journalist and author Claire Shipman. Claire, together with her colleague, journalist Caddy Kay, wrote The Confidence Code, and then later they wrote The Confidence Code for Girls. I loved The Confidence Code when I first picked it up a few years ago because it does a great job of explaining the science behind why all these things that I've already outlined for you, why they can make a big difference. And that's what Claire and I talk about in this conversation. I can't think of anyone who could honestly say they don't struggle with confidence at least some of the time. Some of us struggle with it more often than we might like to admit. But what I found is that confidence is something you build and maintain, frankly, much like influence. It's not static. And we often have to adjust what we're doing and really importantly, how we're thinking and the stories that we tell ourselves in order to maintain or boost our confidence at those times when we really need it most. Friend, here is this week's bonus episode, episode 207 on the science behind confidence with Claire Shipman. Claire, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. We are so delighted to have you. And I am a big, big fan of both the Confidence Code and the Confidence Code for Girls, but really the Confidence Code and have used it in leadership seminars and a course that I teach. I mean, it really is... Fantastic, and I sort of felt like it broke new ground. Well, that's so flattering. I'm learning to accept compliments. That's part of the confidence code. <laughs> it's hard to Thank do. you. I know. I appreciate <laughs> You're that. You're welcome. Yes. You're very welcome. So why the focus on confidence? How did this come about? You know, Caddy and I had written a book a few years before the confidence code about women and work. And one of the things we were struck by, there, and, and really we focused on all this great data that I'm sure you know, but you know, the more women at the top of companies, the more money. Then, but we were struck by what we were finding when we would interview a lot of women who looked incredibly successful to us. And they would say things like, I'm about to get a promotion and I'm not sure I'm ready. My bosses want me to do this. I don't think I'm qualified. 
I'm a fraud. You know, what? <laughs> because, of course, Caddy and I thought, well, we have these thoughts, but we thought we were the only ones who have these thoughts. And we, we just... And these just are really successful people. Really successful to. people. I mean, people to us who looked like just there would be no question they were confident. Give me and an so, example. Like well, there was there was a woman who was um, working at a as a senior executive at a car company in Detroit, a top manager, uh, a woman in New York who's a fairly senior investment banker. I mean, people who'd achieved kind of the traditional milestones, especially in the corporate world that always seemed to us hard to achieve. And we just thought we need to do digging and find out, is this anecdotal or is there something really going on here? Is there actually a gap? And, um, and when we started digging and we've, we found a lot of the data, that's when we knew, wow, this is really something worth exploring. Mm-hmm. What was the most surprising part of this? Obviously, you knew you had something, but as you began to dig into the data, what surprised you most? A couple of things. I think one what surprised us was the regularity with which women underestimate themselves. One, I remember one professor said to us when she wants to give her graduate students uh, some sort of study to conduct just for experience, and she knows what the result will be, she sends them out to give men and women a scientific reasoning test. You ask the women how they've performed. They every time underestimate how they've performed. The men routinely overestimate how they've performed. And this skewing where the women underestimate and the men overestimate, and that that's been studied too, this overconfidence on the part of men really struck us that this was so clear. And I think the other thing that struck us was the notion that we found with um, the studies of one professor at Berkeley, Cameron Anderson, that in many cases, confidence is as important as competence in terms of success in the workplace. And that kind of shocked us at first, and we sort of thought it was horrible because women, you know, we're all about being competent. But then we started to understand it, that it's a skill. Confidence can be viewed as a skill, and we just thought it was important for women to understand that. Another question about the differences between men and women and the way that this information is sort of interpreted. How, how much of it is how we process versus there really being a difference in terms of how confident we are. I mean, we got into we got heavily into the science for our adult book because there there is so much biology now, genetics, neuroscience in terms of, you know, the science of our personalities. So we set out saying, do men have a confidence gene that women don't have, basically, which we didn't think we would find. We did find that a large part of confidence is genetic which we thought was interesting, slightly frightening. Um, (laughs) But what we found is that, and there's not a difference in terms of the genetics with men and women, right? So the the genes they know affect confidence are evenly distributed um, in terms of gender. But what we did find is the way our brains function can be quite different. And I think that's, I guess, the, the one scientist who studies confidence in rats at Cold Spring Harbor was fascinating. And we really tried to drill down into this with him. And and he explained, so it's not that men look at risks and say, that's a crazy risk. I'm going to take it. I just feel, you know, it's literally that the way they're processing that risk is different than the way we are. So uh, what I came to understand is very often women view the world around us and assess the risks around us in a very different way way. And that can lead to a feeling of less confidence. Mm-hmm. So I loved reading about you and Caddy, your Caddy Kay, your co-author, yes. 
write in the confidence code about going through this process of having your own DNA yes. tested. And, and to be clear, you know, for those who don't know, you're both incredibly successful, accomplished women, very accomplished in journalism. How could you not be confident? And yet, what did you find out? That we're basket cases in terms of <laughs> genetic confidence. Um, we And I we, of course, thought, oh, this will be a great gimmick. Let's just get our genes tested. And then we got the results back and we thought, oh, no, we failed a test. You know, we're imperfect. And um, and it, but it helped us to realize the other part of confidence that's so incredible, which is that, of course, part of it may be hereditary, but part of it's volitional. Part of it we do create. And we realized that we had created it over the course of our lifetimes. Like, we still lack confidence. We talk about it in the book. I mean, I'm a perfectionist. That can inhibit, you know, confidence. So we both lack confidence still in a lot of ways. And we talk about it in the book. I'm a perfectionist, and that can inhibit confidence. Caddy sometimes confesses to me she thinks she's successful because of her British accent. You know, just crazy <laughs> things. It is nice but, to have yes, a British accent. It's, it, it does help. Okay, that's <laughs> fair. It doesn't hurt anything. That's fair. Um, but what we found is when you look at the field of um, neuroscience and brain plasticity now and what they're realizing, we really can rewire our brains even at 30, 40, 50. And when we change our thinking habits we are in the process of rewiring our brains. So when we're telling you, you can build more confidence, you can almost literally see that happen. And I think that's what got us through that depressing news about our genetics. Yeah. Well, but even, you know, even given that um, those results, it doesn't seem to have held either of you back particularly, right? You're both very successful, accomplished people. So how would you have been different, do you think? Well, I think that that's a great question. And so, and, and it gets to the heart of this issue, which we I talked about earlier, which is that, you know, there are all these successful women out there who don't sound confident. So does it matter? I think we would still argue yes, because I think I can look at in certain areas of my life and realize I would have done more things. I would have done different things mm -hmm. had I not been so focused on being right all the time and being risk averse. I think I might have... A, been a little more creative, I probably would have branched out in different ways. And I think that's one area that that where even when women are successful, we don't know how much more successful we might have been or happy with what we're doing. But the, the other part of it really is, it's just hard to feel a lack of confidence. It's not fun to process things that way. So I think then it has to do with our inner lives and what we're experiencing. And it's just not obviously as fulfilling to experience success when we doubt ourselves all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dig into this notion of brain plasticity. I love the idea of this because it really is about you being in the driver's seat, right? You have control you to do. some degree over how this works. So talk a little bit about what that means and ways that people can sort of make themselves more confident. We were really focused on, all right, what's the formula for confidence? You know, how do we break it down? And as best as we could discover, the formula is simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Mm. So it really has to do with taking risks, doing some failing, persevering, mastering something ultimately, and it's, it's this cycle. So it's really interesting, actually. One professor explained to us, confidence actually is 
what turns our thoughts into action. Mm. So confidence isn't just, I feel great about myself, right? That's self-esteem. I feel I'm a valid human being, I should be here. Confidence is, I'm thinking about doing something and then that's the stuff that lets us actually then go do it, which involves a little bit of a risk, right? So confidence greases the wheels as it were, but it's a virtuous circle. So it doing creates more confidence. So once you get going, you're building up a stockpile. So risk taking and action, those things can be really hard for all of us. I think for a lot of women, it, risk taking will look different for everybody. We talk to a lot of women for whom, of course, speaking up in meetings is a big risk. That's always an issue. Some people are more introverts than others. Some women feel rightly more intimidated when they're the only woman in a room and they have to speak up. And there's a lot of data about that. Some women just have trouble. We talked to successful women who are senior executives. One partner at a law firm said, I just have trouble making decisions every day because I think every decision needs to be 100% perfect. And then I refuse to make them. And then every I have a, you know 100 people waiting for me. And she said she had to create a rule for herself that 90% of her decisions would be good, 10% would be wrong, and she just would have to deal with the fallout. But that mental trick lets her just decide and move on. So sometimes it's about being less perfectionistic. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to identify where is it that you're unwilling to take risks in life and then start small and allow yourself to start to get used to failing, essentially. Do you think it changes over time? This woman who's very senior in a law firm clearly has had to make a lot of decisions over the course of her right. career. Right. So did it become more difficult for her? Did she, you know, is it something that maybe happens at different points or different peaks and valleys over the course of your lifetime? Like, what do you think about that? Well, what we found is that we did a, a confidence quiz when we released our adult book. We created a quiz online and an enormous number of women took it. We created it with a couple of academics and I don't think they've ever seen this amount of data. <laughs> they thought they'd get a thousand people and I think 50,000 people took the quiz or something. Fantastic. So it's cr it's crazy. We use it in great. my class. <laughs> and we found that in general, women's confidence does slightly grow over time, right? There's this low at puberty, mm -hmm. which is why we wrote the girls book, but yeah. then it slightly grows over time. I think showing that women do learn a lot, right? We learn eventually to take risks, ideally, and to move through it. But there is also situational confidence. And I think for a lot of women, there are periods in their lives when they have troughs. For a lot of women, it might be taking time out of the workplace, trying to get back in, where you just don't feel you know, that you've had that practice again. And, it, and a lot of it really does come down to just the experiencing over and over and put it, you know, the willingness to put yourself out there. We were talking to a woman the other day who said, well, we, you know, we want to create all these programs, but so many women think they almost need to go back and get a master's degree before they can go back to work because they want a credential because they're not confident enough that what they know it's going to work. It's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. Okay, let's pivot and talk about the confidence code for girls. As you thought about this, how much, so you're the mother of two children. You have mm -hmm. a son who's mm -hmm. older yes. and a daughter who's yes. younger. How much did your experience with your daughter enter into your desire to write about confidence for younger younger girls? You know, it's funny. It, it really was not the driving force although I've learned so much from it. I think we, we, were, look, we were thinking, what do we want to do next? Because the, the book did really well, and we, we thought about other things for adult women, but we really got 
fixated on this notion that confidence drops pretty severely for girls at puberty and why that is. And just for example, I mean, girls tend to drop out of competitive sports at six times the rate boys do. And, and competitive sports is one of the few things that's been shown to clearly give people a boost in their careers. Other things would too, but competitive sports is just a kind of a no-brainer. Yeah. So we're just like, what if we could get in there at that moment and help girls understand the power of risk-taking and failure, you know, and help them avoid the trap of perfectionism? And I was seeing some of that with my daughter, but oddly, she's a real tomboy. And so I, for a while, I thought, oh, I'm immune to this because she's a tomboy. Well, boy, was I wrong. I mean, she's a tomboy, but she has all of the perfectionism. She has all, and this all started pouring out as I was writing the book. It's like, oh, wow. oh my gosh, you know, she, I'm not going to do debate. I'm no good at it. I have no idea how to do it. You know, I, it's just this, and I would look at my son and be like, yeah, mom, I got it. I'm fine. And, and literally at one point he said to me, it was the third or fourth test in middle school that he'd gotten back where he's like, I did so well. You know, he get it back, B minus, C plus. And he's like, I've noticed that I tend to think I'm always going to do better than I do. And the girls in my class are always worried and they do really well. And I said, oh, interesting. You know. how, how do you begin to socialize these, or sort of at what age do you begin to socialize these topics with your kids, with your with your female children in particular, but really with both kids? You know, I think, um, well, they're a little, for me, it's hard because they're sick of hearing me. If you say the word research one more time, stop, you know, I feel like I've probably turned them off of this notion just by being involved myself. But I, I think it's tricky with girls because Caddy and I have realized, and we've been talking to girls since the book came out. And she also has a daughter? She has two daughters, two daughters. one who's uh, just graduated from college and one who's 12. <laughs> and um, and you don't want, we don't want girls to think, oh my gosh, some gloomy, horrible thing is approaching and we're all going to catch no the no confidence disease, right? <laughs> and so instead, what we've tried to do is talk to them about the benefits of uh, risk-taking and the exciting parts of it and and let them see there's an alternative to having to be the good girl and get everything right all of the time and understand why that quest for perfectionism I think is just not worth it and so we you know try to have casual conversations about it mm-hmm. it's it's hard you know kids want to listen when they want to listen and otherwise not at all yeah yeah it, but it's so interesting how early these sort of thoughts seem to trickle in. Our daughter is only eight years old, and I see this tendency toward perfectionism already, and I see this tendency toward, well, maybe I just won't do that. She's eight. Right. You know, she's, you know, not not too far from puberty, right. but far enough yes. that I'm a little surprised that she's already beginning to think along these terms. So, well, it's actually for eight to 12-year-old okay. girls. So we, we picked that age because it, it's really at eight is when we start to see the drop happen. Mm-hmm. And we, we did a poll um, with this great company, um, Y-Pulse, who, and they're used to talking to parents and their kids, and this was done in a really sophisticated way. We found so many interesting things. One, that parents all over the place like you are, get shocked when they see their daughters who, you know, at age six, seven, are like wildly confident, right? And then where does this hesitation come from? Also, interestingly, that dads are better at spotting a lack of confidence in their daughters often than moms. Wow. And we think, and the pollster thinks it's because 
it's even stranger for dads to see. They don't recognize that, right? Women, we often recognize those feelings and we think, oh yeah, that does seem risky. You know, and, and so we're not viewing the behavior often as odd. Mm-hmm. It's so normal to us. Yes, it's normal. And we kind of think, oh, that's not great. But we also understand it because we went through it. And, and so dads, I think, can be a real asset in this if, if they can get engaged on it and kind of just challenge your daughters to do things that are outside of their comfort zone. And the failure has to be just who cares. Yeah. Let's talk about how you retooled the confidence code to turn it into the confidence uh-huh. code for girls because it's, you know, the content is there, but it's structured differently. You've yes. got quizzes. So talk a little bit about how you structured the book and how difficult was that? It was harder than we thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think our publisher thought, oh, wow, just, you know, just boom, turn it around. <laughs> and of course, we thought being slightly perfectionistic, we said, well, no. We want the girls to actually like this book, right? We're not, we don't want to just sell it to the parents. We want girls to not be bored stiff. So we worked with some cognitive behavioral therapists. We actually worked with a writer who's written for tweens before too, to find, you know, just help us with the voice. But what we realized is what really engages kids at this age is quizzes, um, you know, scenarios. Here's the scenario where so and so and the sleepover happens, and you know which is the confident choice. And they and so we have a lot of those sorts of things and less expository. Let us tell you about confidence, kids, and here's what you should know. Um, and so we tried that. We have a, it's illustrated. We have graphic novel panels because we think those are a great way to lay out scenarios for girls too. And then we have stories of real girls who have done confident things, but not. Not girls like Malala, who are awesome, but just out of reach for all, you know, my 13-year-old. It's like, yeah, well, I'm not, am I really going to do that? But we have, you know, girls who are trying to box in a headscarf or who campaign to have free tampons in a girl's locker room or just things that are accessible and that help them see what they might be able to do. Yeah. What are the most important takeaways for parents related to raising their daughters and to some extent maybe their sons so i think um this i think it's really tricky because i think we live in a culture right now that is so pressurized and especially as you'll see with your kids it just you know the whole sort of getting good grades getting into college so and and we are literally preaching anti-perfectionism and so that that's at odds with everything has to be perfect, everything. And so I think for parents to understand that it's very easy to give in to this, you know, get good grades, do everything right all the time, but that for girls especially, it can be just a horrible kind of disease, you know, because you're because they're not figuring out who they are, they're not learning to fail and take risks. And the fact of the matter is the standards in the workplace are utterly different. So we, I, 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 we, we were just writing a piece about it for The Atlantic, and it's really, it feels to me like a big bait and switch, that we have this educational system. Parents, teachers, we're all sort of right up through college. It's just do well, do well, do well, do perfectly, please everybody, do everything just right, don't fail. And then you're out in the workplace, and guess what? Oh, it's totally different. Take risks, fail, keep going. And girls have internalized all this stuff, and it's not what they need. 
And boys, of course, try as they might, haven't really internalized it because they just can't do it as well. Mm -hmm. So they've naturally learned along the way to fail and mess up, and they've built confidence. Mm -hmm. I, I often feel like the terminology should be, you need sort of different words for perfection and failure. Perfection's really a bad thing. Failure's right. actually really a good thing. Right. And yet the, the words that you're conditioned yes. to sort of strive for perfection and avoid failure, yes. like it's completely the reverse. We thought about that too, because some people said to us, don't use the word failure because it's so negative. It's not failure. I said, I know, but it's just, it's a shorthand people understand. Because girls, especially at this age, are so prone to the melodrama and the, oh my God, they're so awful. It's a complete fail. And they, they understand. <laughs> it and the drama of it and the more they can see that um, you just recover and you move on and I think for me as a parent what's great about it is it's liberating if you can know as your child is striking out at bat for the tenth time or bringing home a bad grade or a fight with a friend and they move through it you know your first instinct is to suffer for them and then fix it but if you can also tell yourself oh god they're learning such an important lesson right now it helps you get through it too it's so hard to be a parent it is it's the so hardest hard thing. to do that oh my goodness it's the hardest thing it's really hard yeah now that you have this incredible knowledge and perspective having studied this topic how do you think your career might have been different that's so interesting um you know, I don't, it, it's hard, it, it is hard to think back on it and, and pick out what I might have done differently. I mean, I've liked, I've always liked telling stories. So I, 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 I'm happy I ended up in journalism, I think. And I give this example a lot in speeches that when I think about how do I lack confidence for years when I was on political talk shows, um, I was often the only woman on a panel, or say on the George Stephanopoulos show. And I was I always had this sense that I was talking less than the men, than the male panelists. And I went back before the, our first book came out and I measured, I had an intern help me just measure the talk time. And I had on average talked 30% less than the men. No kidding. Largely because I felt I had to only say exactly what was right, what I had prepared for, only answer the question. I wasn't gonna answer George's question and then say something else I might want to say, right? That would be presumptuous, right? But the men were just talking all <laughs> over the place. And, you know, so, and I realized I just, that was a metaphor for me for what, okay, what did I hold myself back from? Was it different sorts of pieces, different sorts of reporting? I agonized for a long time, for almost a year about moving on from the White House beat. Maybe I would have, you know, I, I think there are a lot of things that I might have pursued that might not have been radically different, but certainly would have made me feel calmer and less anxious all the time Yeah, with more confidence. As you think big picture about your career, about these two, three actually amazing books that you've written, um, what impact do you hope all of this will have on others and on the world? I have to try not to just crumple up in a ball and say, what? These little books? <laughs> it's so hard. I still find it hard when people come up to me and say, your book really helped me. I, may, I literally break into a sweat. I'm like, what? Really? What? I'm to go hide under my covers. Um, you need to just accept this. I, they really are hard. great books. <laughs> um, I, I, I guess I like the idea of starting a conversation. So I'm, I'm a really... Um, not a black and white person, and I'm. I love the. I love 
throwing this out there and but understanding there's more to learn did we get every single point right in the book probably not is there more to know especially about boys absolutely um and and i think i i just i hope people will start to look at this and uh and think about i guess especially in terms of confidence and the way we raise girls you know what could we be doing differently on the kind of social emotional education front because I, I i really do think to be very concrete that you know the pressure on kids these days and the pressure to succeed and do it in a way that's just allows for almost no failure for boys and girls by the way is really unhealthy and i think if we could understand this how to build resilience and confidence and we made that more of a focus than uh getting everything right on the test we'd be raising a much stronger generation of kids but the other thing i hope is that we get a lot more women running things mm. that's my long-term goal Amen. because i yes i think <laughs> the more women in charge the better world we're going to have. So let's talk about that long-term goal. What's what's next? Are you focused on what's next? What are you working on currently? We are just talking about that. I mean, the book only came out six weeks ago, so we're still <laughs> we're still um, thinking about the you know, this book and what we you know we want to get this book ideally into schools. Mm -hmm. We think it would be a, a useful tool, but we're thinking about would it is there some way we could support. Um, you know, something like Running Start, this great organization right. that trains women, young women to run for office. And could we help with that at an even younger age and start to get girls more confident in their own voices? Um, but we, I, I've been thinking a lot about boys. I think boys right now need a lot of help and guidance, given everything that's happening. I don't think they know what's expected of them. Mm -hmm. They don't talk about their feelings as much. So I'd love to see a focus on that. I don't, I don't know whether that's us or not, but we're, we're mulling. That's fantastic. In the Confidence Code for Girls, one of the great exercises, at least I thought it was one of the great exercises, is to write down your top five risks. So, so five risks that are not, you know, like jumping off of a cliff right. necessarily, but, but smart risks that you might take. What about for you? What are five risks for you as you think about some of these great questions? That's a great question in general. I, you know, I, I try to, I am pretty cautious, even though I've written these books and I've tried to learn from it. So it, it's, it feels risky to me. It felt risky to me to write a book in the first place. It felt very risky to me to have the audacity to write a book for girls. Uh, we're starting to speak at schools. That feels incredibly risky to me because I just keep thinking, what, how am I qualified to do this? I guess I... I you know, thinking about whether we start some sort of organization, that would feel like a risk to me. Am I, could I do that? I'm, I'm, um, I'm an introvert. And so there's a lot that feels risky to me about starting something and leading it and, and trying to figure out how to deal with that. So I think that's something I'm trying to wrestle with a little bit. How did your collaboration with Caddy come about in the first place? And what made you good collaborators? Oh, I think one, it's fun to work with somebody. I really, I, I feel so lucky we did this together. I don't know that I would have had the 
not just the nerve, but I don't know that I ever would have turned in a manuscript because, of course, I'm also a procrastinator. So we we work well together because Caddy is not a procrastinator. So we'd I'd be the one saying, well, but we really need the perfect thesis. And she'd say, okay, I'm done with chapter one and I'm moving on to chapter three. And I'd say, what? Oh my gosh. And then I would feel I had to jump into action. And we just had a great back and forth that way that I think kept things moving forward. Caddy and I almost immediately after we first met, we were at a cocktail party and we both were comparing notes about how we loved our TV jobs, but basically just were always hoping for days off or days when we weren't called to work and that we didn't have to go to work the next day. And we realized we're like, God, are we the only two TV journalists who want less time on television and we wanna be doing something else too? And so I think when we had this idea about the way we work and the way we try to juggle things with kids, you know, which was our first book, it just seemed very natural. And we thought, let's, okay, let's try this. Who knows? And it's been, it's been a great partnership. Yeah. Really fun. Yeah. Well, you also, you seem very similar in many yes. respects in terms of the way that you approach the world and this notion of confidence. You, your results, your DNA results were somewhat similar as that, well. Yes. That was kind of interesting. That was interesting because I wouldn't have thought that. I assumed Caddy had super confident genes and I thought, oh, I'll be the anxious one. Uh, but we both had a really similar profile. Um, and it's just, but temperamentally, I think it helps when you have a partner because number one, it means I'm not obsessing with my husband about stuff, which saves our marriage, which is really useful. And it just keeps you motivated. One thing that I think is so curious is the fact that you have had this uh, successful career. There must have been things that you inherently were doing to boost your confidence that that parallels with the research that you found. Have you thought about what it was, even though you felt underconfident, right. your DNA says you may not have been the most confident person in the room, but clearly you were putting one foot in front of the other and you continued to move forward. That's, I know, I do think about that. I, You know, my sister said to me at one point when, maybe it was when our second book came out, I can't remember if it was our second or first, and we were talking about rule breaking something in the book and she stood I remember she stood up and she made a test and she's like well that's you you've always broken the rules and I thought I have I, I didn't realize that and so maybe I, I do think there's part of me that was driven and I and that I haven't been worried about convention so much mm -hmm. and so I uh, and I think that's helped that I have had a sense I can do things I think that my the, th the the reason I think I felt less than confident is has to do a lot with this perfectionism and this feeling that I'm always falling short. Mm -hmm. I'm capable, but I could be doing it a hundred times better. And so I think that is um, that's just limiting. I think that the experience of just getting out and doing things and trying them, I've I have certainly learned confidence doing that. And I also had, you know, in a lot of ways, you, I didn't, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. I had to work in high school if I wanted to buy new sweaters or if I, and, and so some of just the life stuff, you know, when you have those experiences, that does teach you confidence, right? Because you're just being handed these opportunities. Yeah. Maybe a little fear of failure, perhaps yeah. too. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Anything I've missed? Any Gosh, big This has been so topics? great. Um, I think that one thing that is uh, that a lot of people ask about with kids and girls, especially, is social media, mm -hmm. and what do you know? What about confidence and social media? And 
I would say that it, we, we try to approach it in the book in a really realistic way. Social media is not going to go away, but we tried to talk to girls about pitfalls to avoid and also how to use it in a positive way. But I think what parents should understand is that at puberty, in addition to feeling a confidence drop, this sense of um, often of rumination and overthinking, that's when that kicks in, mm. right at puberty. So imagine these poor girls, they have no idea what's going on in their brains and they're overthinking everything. And what social media does on top of that is just doubles down on that. Fuel, right? It's just mm. fuel. And, and one teacher said to us at one point, you know, in the olden days, you'd have a fight with your friend at school, you'd come home and there'd be a natural break. You could have eight hours without dealing with it. Not anymore. It's just you can deal with it incessantly. And so we try to give them some tools for knowing when to really get off of it and put it away, but also how you can find positive outlets on social media because there are great ways for kids to find people like them on social media, to connect with them and say, look, it's a tool, use it well. And I think if parents can support that, it's a, it's a better direction. Yeah, that's great advice. We always ask everyone who comes on the podcast for sort of a single piece of li- piece of advice or a life hack, something that's maybe your mantra or something that you share with other people. You've given us lots of <laughs> <laughs> lots of advice already. But is there one single thing that's been your driving force or that's become your driving force or something that you, you know? It's funny. Like? Well, we have a mantra with our book, which is. Um, do more, which means risk more, think less, and be authentic. So we have a big part about, you know, look, being yourself is the way you're going to be the most confident. And I like that for shorthand. But I also like something some young girl came up to me and told me uh, about a year ago at a conference. She said, well, when I just think I'm not going to do something, I do what my dad told me, which is I do it afraid. So just do it anyway. Do it afraid. And in other words, don't don't fake it till you make it. Don't try to pretend you shouldn't be afraid. So a lot of things in life are frightening, but do what I think a lot of men do, which is just, ooh, it looks horrible, and I'm gonna do it anyway. So I've been using that a lot, whether it comes to sending an email I find frightening, or it's just like, oh, I don't like that, but I'm just gonna do it afraid. And so I think, recognize the feeling and move on. Yeah, Claire. Thank you. This was awesome. Such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. It was really fun. Thank you. Friend, thanks so much for joining me for this bonus episode of She Said, She Said podcast. You'll find a full transcript and some great takeaways from this episode in the show notes. And you'll find those things on my website at shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. I'd love to know what you do to boost your own confidence, especially in those times when it's taken a real hit. It happens to all of us at one point or another, and so I'd love to know what works for you. I hope you found this week's episode a good investment in you. I'll talk to you again soon, and hopefully by then I will be COVID-free and my voice will be fully back. In the meantime, you take care. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.